Well, if you will, please turn in a copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 27. We're getting close to the end of Acts. Acts chapter 27. Paul's going to get shipwrecked today. Uh, I, was, I got to visit a couple Sunday schools this morning, and the men this morning were talking about Jonah. And so in Jonah, one prophet heads west in disobedience because he's supposed to go north. In our text today, Paul needs to go west, but he ends up going south and get, getting shipwrecked. And yet God gets him there anyway. Uh, this is a longer piece of Scripture, so let's pray and ask God to help us, okay? Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, and Lord, You have given us this chapter for a reason. Uh, Lord, I pray that by Your Spirit, as we read it together, that You would begin to change our hearts, that we would be more like You. Lord, our prayer is that um, you would help us to respond to the storms of life in faith and courage. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, Acts chapter 27, starting at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. 
For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, or 120 feet. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, or 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, our prayer is that you would help us as we come to the preaching of your word, as we seek to worship you in this moment, we ask for unction and anointing for the hearer and preacher alike. In the name of Jesus, amen. May the Lord help us to respond to the storms of life with faith and courage. That's the takeaway today. It's in your bulletin, and we'll say it many times. May the Lord help us to respond to the storms of life with faith and courage. I wonder, did the survivors of the Titanic ever get back on a ship? Certainly one going across the Atlantic. You know, having sailed on the unsinkable, did they entrust themselves to lesser ships? By some estimates, by this point, Paul had traveled 3,000 miles by sea. His ministry is about 33 years. He is an experienced sailor. You know, to, to travel by sea in those days was a risky business. And indeed, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we find that Paul, by this point, had already been shipwrecked three times. And in one of those times, he was adrift in the ocean, in the water, for a night and a day. And yet, here we are. Paul's a back, back aboard a ship. But it was kind of by his choice and kind of not. See, Paul was a prisoner. He had been a prisoner in Caesarea for two years. 
And having appealed to Caesar, he was now being shipped to Rome for his case to be heard by the emperor Nero. And what a trip it was going to be, right? One filled with the potential for great fear and great trepidation. The conditions they faced upon the ship before they were shipwrecked, they're they're almost unimaginable. And yet, how did Paul respond? Was there terror for Paul? No, we have an example here of faith and courage. You know, one of the questions that we can ask anytime we come to a text in the Bible is, why did God put this text in the Bible? Why did He include this? There are a lot of things that aren't included about the life of Paul and about the life of Jesus. Why did He put this in the Bible? It was for a reason. Is it so that if you're sailing in the Mediterranean and you find yourself adrift at sea that you'll know what to do? Well, if that happens to you, please think of Acts 27. But I would imagine it does apply to us as well. For while the storms we face may not involve salt water threatening to fill the hold of a brain ship, we face storms nonetheless. And the question is, how will we face them? How will we face the storms of life? Will it be with faith and courage? Or will it be with the actions, attitudes, and words, more like the sailors and soldiers who make some really bad decisions in this text? So our prayer is, may the Lord help us to face the storms of life with faith and courage. Paul actually sails on two different ships in in chapter 27. We see the first one in verses 1 through 5. This was known as a coasting vessel, one that would have stayed close to the shore. It's going along uh, the shoreline of Asia. That's not Asia as in China and Japan Asia. This is the province of Asia in the Roman world, which is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. We find that, Luke, uh, that uh, Paul was not alone. We know that Luke was with him. How do we know that? Because the word we, or a verbal form of we, appears 16 times in chapter 27. Luke is the author of Acts, and he's right there with Paul. And another man named Aristarchus, who had been called up in persecution as a believer in Ephesus. They travel uh, with Paul. Now, Paul's trip, his ticket had been paid for by the Roman government but not Luke and Aristarchus. They seem to have paid their own way to travel with Paul. So Paul is placed as a prisoner and with other prisoners under the authority of a man named Julius, a centurion, and his soldiers. As we think through this, this plea, this prayer, that the Lord would help us to face the storms of life with faith and courage, we have three keys, which you'll find in your bulletin. And by the way, there's a map in there. It's a complex passage of sailing this way and that, and so I've provided a map for you. The first key is we seek to face the storms of life with faith and courage. The first is God's wonderful gift of friends and fellowship, right? You know, God had provided Paul with amazing friends, We find out earlier in the book of Acts that Luke and Aristarchus, they're not just teaming up with Paul now. They've been traveling with Paul. And in fact, they have been with Paul in the two years plus that he's been in Caesarea in jail. They have been caring for his needs. And now he's being put on a grain ship heading to Rome. And where do they go? They say, yeah, we'll go with you. What amazing friends. They would set aside whatever they had going on. Were they married? I don't know. They have a family? I don't know. They certainly had businesses before all this happened. They set those aside as co-laborers of Christ, and they went with Paul. 
You know, my friends, I think we have lost the value of Christian friendship. Phones, I think, have robbed us of this. Social media has robbed us of this. The business of life has robbed us of this. The importance of having Christian friends that, we will, that hold each other up and grant us strength and courage and point us back to Jesus and, and help steady us along our way to help us get perspective and, and then just to help us when we need it. You know, as believers in Christ, our, our closest friends are supposed to be Christians because your closest friends influence you greatly. Have friends who aren't believers, do that, yes. But your closest friends need to be believers who can point you to Jesus that when you go through the storms of life, they help you find the horizon again. Do you have people like that in your life? If you don't, pray for it. But do you see your need for people like that in your life? Or are you a loner? You know, there's no such thing as a Christian loner. There's not. Because that's not how we're saved. It's not how we're built. We're built to do this Christian life together. And when we become believers, we become part of the church, the people of God. And so this is why fellowship, worship together, corporate worship, Sunday school, Wednesday nights, and other events, that's why these things are important as we seek to foster relationships one with the other. And so they set sail. And Paul finds favor with Julius, who gives him shore leave when they get to Sidon, their first uh, stop. Julius lets him go into the city to be cared for by his Christian friends. They set sail from there, heading north and along the southern shore of what's now modern-day Turkey. The wind wasn't very cooperative. Nothing about this trip was easy, but after sailing for a long time, they they finally make it to the hub port of Myra. Now, Myra is kind of like Atlanta, right? If you're going to fly Delta, at some point, you've got to go through Atlanta. And that's how Myra was. It served as a hub for all of the Mediterranean. But at Myra, the Roman centurion had to take them off of that ship and put them on another, because that ship wasn't going to Italy. Instead, he put them on a ship, them, the prisoners and his soldiers, on a ship uh, of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, heading to Italy. Now, let's talk about what kind of ship this is. Um, this is a huge ship from uh, ancient standards and perhaps even modern ones. So Rome was dependent on Egyptian wheat. That's where the wheat was grown. Uh, and so it was important that there be a constant flow of grain on specially built ships called grain ships heading to Rome. And they were huge. One estimate puts them at 180 feet long. That's three times the distance from here to the back of the church. It's a big ship with a width of 44 feet and a depth of 43 uh, 43 feet. This is a a big ship. But the thing is, these ships were not made for comfort. They were made to store cargo. And every possible nook and cranny would have been filled with grain. The more grain, the more money. That's how it works. And so while there may have been one, maybe two, maybe three cabins under the deck, that's not where you stayed. You stayed on deck for the entire journey. Verse 37 says that there were 276 people on this ship. And on this deck, there was cargo strapped down. We learned that because they're going to throw it overboard in a little while. And not only that, there would have been animals running around for slaughtering and for eating along the way. There would have been animal things on the deck. (laughs) This This was not a pleasant experience. 
And so when you think about this storm that they're in, where is Paul? Where is Aristarchus? Where is Luke? Where are these soldiers? They're on the deck. They might have had rudimentary sh- uh, shelters, you know, a, a small pup tent set up. But there's no escaping the wind and the water. So, th- so think about these conditions as they go through this storm. To say it was um, crowded would have been an understatement. They got on their way, and as soon as they got on their way, things got hard. They took a long time to get to the next port called Nidus, and the text says they arrived with difficulty. Three times in our passage this word difficulty is used. The Greek word is stronger than that. It means scarcely, barely, hardly. At this point, they're already off course, and it's about to get worse. They needed to go west, right? They needed to go west. But they couldn't because the ship could not sail into the wind. Ships in those days were what called, what's called square-rigged, large square sails. And, and, the, and if you're a sailor, they could only uh, uh, sail into the wind uh, at a 60 degrees off the, where the, the direction of the wind. 60 degrees. That's the closest they could sail into the direction of the wind. And so if the wind is coming one way real hard, you're not going that way. They needed to go west, but what did they do? They went south. This was not planned. They were off course. Now let's think a minute as we think through how this can apply to our our lives. They wanted to go west. Where did they go? They went south. Have you ever felt like that in life? Where you want to go one direction and you find your life going a whole different one. You feel that you're, you're driven along by the mercies of the winds of life. Maybe it's at work. Things don't go well and it's has nothing to do with your effort or your desire. Maybe it's a, a relationship. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's with your friends. Paul ends up going south when he needed to go west. How does Paul respond here? Not with despair. That's how we usually respond, right? But with courage and faith. May the Lord grant us the same. Because we're going to see next week, spoiler alert, that sometimes God's got to take you the wrong way to get you where He wants you. It doesn't get any better for Paul. They make it to the island of Crete and barely make it to a port called Fairhaven and where they pause. It's a crucial time of decision now. Paul says, let's stay here. Let's stay here. Let's stay here. Remember, Paul has probably more experience sailing than many of the sailors do. Right? He knows how the Mediterranean works. And he knows that any time after September 15th, you should not sail on the Med. In fact, no ships would sail on the Med, even locally, from November 11th through March 10th because it got so stormy and the winds didn't work. And it says here that the fast has already happened. What's the fast? It's the Day of Atonement. When is that? Early October. They're in the middle of the Mediterranean, going the wrong way. And he says, guys, we really should just stay here for the winter. That was commonly done. But the grain, the grain would get so much money Right? especially in the off-season. And so they decided to keep going. Well, they try to go 40 um, miles to the west to make it to the last port in Crete, and it didn't work. They never made it. As they got closer, a great wind called the Northeaster struck the ship. And struck really is the right word, right? The Greek word here actually refers more to more of a hurricane force wind, the tempestuous wind. Put yourself on that ship. Let's, let's think about this ship. 
Big ship, crowded upon the decks, clothes soaked. There is not a dry place to be. The wind howling so loud you can't hear yourself think. The skies are covered by clouds. The ship is rocking back and forth, not just sideways, not just forward and back, but, but every which way. You can hear the timbers of this grain ship, this heavenly, grain, heavily laden grain ship, starting to pop at the seams. You start wondering what's going to happen to that grain when water gets into it. Right? You go down deep into one trough. And when that happens, when you're deep in the trough, the wind doesn't hit the sail anymore. And so you kind of get slack and start moving this way and that. And then you come up the top of the crest, and then the wind hits just like that, and it starts blowing the ship in a different direction. It does it every time, up and down. Can you hear the cries of those on the ship with you? And then knowing that the last piece of safe land is behind you over the horizon, and you're being pushed in the wrong direction. Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the chaos? May the Lord grant us the grace we need to meet the storms of life with faith and courage. And so what do they do? Well, they're barely barely able to get the ship's boat secured. They're going to need that later. They even have to run cables underneath the ship to tighten them to keep the ship from falling apart. Things look pretty dire. They even throw out a sea anchor A big sail dragged by the ship to slow it down. And the next day, what do they do? They throw the cargo out. And the next day, they start throwing the ship's tackle overboard. This is a desperate situation. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Have you ever been there? When it seems like all hope has been lost. They didn't know where they were without the stars, without the sun, because of the clouds. They couldn't get their direction. They didn't know where they were. The first compass wasn't used in Europe for another thousand years. God often takes us through trials in our lives, not so that He might see what is in us, but that we might see what's in us. He does it to show us where we are weak and where we are strong. He does it to strengthen our faith, to cause us to run to Him again. And here Paul goes through it all with spades. Paul isn't the hero. He's not Jesus. He's not perfect. But he does point us to the way we are all to respond. What does he say in verse 22? Yet now I urge you to take heart. Can you imagine how loud he had to yell amongst all the wind and the waves to get everybody to hear him? 275 other people. What did you say, Paul? Take heart. Can't you see the waves? Can't you feel the wind? Can't you smell the salt? Can't you hear the cries of the passengers? How could he say something like this? It wasn't just, hey, believe and it'll be all right. It's rooted in the Word of God. Verse 23 and 24. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Amidst the rocky storms of life, we're looking for safety, aren't we? Though often we look in the wrong harbors, the wrong anchorages. Safety is ultimately found as believers in Christ and the fact that we belong to God. Don't you love how Paul puts this? The God whom I worship and to whom I belong. 
What promises does He make to us in His Word? He won't let anything snatch us out of His hand, John 10. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. Though we die, yet shall we live, John 11. He will not leave us and He will not forsake us, Joshua 1. He will eventually wipe away every tear, Revelation 21. So look at our three keys for for making it through the storms of life with faith and courage. The first is friends and fellowship. The second is the Word of God. Paul's anchor here, he's not having faith in faith. He doesn't have just a bunch of ooey-gooey feelings inside. He's putting his faith in the God who has revealed himself to him and also to us. And here he has a direct revelation from God through an angel that everything's going to be all right. Though they're going to lose the ship. He tells them in verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. O Lord, give us that strength. Give us that faith. There were a lot of voices on that ship weren't there. A lot of voices on that ship. A lot of despair. But to whom does Paul listen? To God. My friends, by soaking our lives in the Word of God, His promises and His assurances and His truths, they will be louder than the voices around us. Some of those voices are loud and sometimes they're close. In every plane, there's something called an attitude indicator. It's not a mood ring, like to tell you your attitude. An attitude indicator is, is that ball that moves up and down and, and jiggles with it, you know, as you go up and down and left and right. It tells you where the horizon is. Sometimes in life we need one of those, right? We can't see straight. And that's the Word of God. That's what it does for us. But the third key is to talk to God in prayer. Verse 24, And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul had been praying. We know that. First uh, Thessalonians 5, Paul says, pray without ceasing. I, I bet Paul was praying in this situation, don't you? This word granted is actually a word that means to receive as a gift in prayer. Right? It's a gift responding to Paul's prayer. He had been praying not just for himself, but all those who were with him. Because he knew that most of them didn't know Jesus. Perhaps all but he and his buddies. And that to perish in the Mediterranean would mean to perish eternally in hell. Paul had been active in his trust. He had specifically asked God to protect the 275 other people, and God had answered as he had asked. If your children are hungry, what do they have to do to give you food, for you to give them food? They have to beg, right? Do they have to put an application in triplicate? Right? Does it have to go through an office out of town? No. They but have to ask. How much more does God give justice to the elect? Speedily. James 4, 2, you have not because you ask not. A lot of times when we're in storms, what we do is, the 275 other people, is we start talking to the other people about how bad the storm is, and then we call upon the boat over there, hey, you know how bad this, this storm is? It's awful. But on the mast, there is a phone booth. And you merely have to pick it up and get to talk to the one who controls the storm. And instead of talking to others, instead of talking to God, we talk to others, don't we? Or have conversations with ourselves. Do you do that? I do that. 
Back to the story where the chapter continues. Fourteen days, fourteen days adrift at sea. The sailors believe they're getting close to the land. They likely hear the pounding of the waves on what's called the Point of Cora, which is a rocky barrier off the shore of Malta, 476 miles away from Crete. That's a long way that they've drifted. The sailors measure the depth of the water and find that they are shoaling, that is quickly getting shallower. And so they, they let out four anchors from the stern, hoping to keep themselves from going up on the rocks and killing everybody on board. And then they do something really selfish. They start looking at that boat, this anchor that's attached to the back of the, of the ship. They think, hey, I bet there's just enough room for all the sailors. If we could quietly and quickly get that thing down, we could escape. We could make something up about having a reason to do it. Paul figures it out, and he turns to the soldiers and says, Hey, unless they're on board, we're all going to die. Because they're the sailors, and we don't know how to get off this thing. You know, a lot of times when we uh, face the storms of life, we make bad decisions, don't we? Have you ever done that? You ever made a bad decision when things are hard in your life? You know, here we have an evidence of responding in unbelief rather than belief. They've been told, look, you're going to be okay. We're going to lose the ship. But God has told me that everybody's going to survive. The only place that was safe was in the boat, in the ship. And they sought to leave. And how often do we do that? God says, look, you're going to get through this. And less damage will be done if you follow my commands. And how often do we make it worse by responding in unbelief? through fear and anxiety, anger, frustration, you name it. Well, they do something stupid and selfish. <laughs> but it's funny because the, the, the soldiers are about to do the same thing, right? They're, they're about to do something really stupid. So what do the soldiers do? They cut the boat loose. They, were, they needed the boat. They need the boat to get to shore at some point, and they just say, oh, it'll be, it'll be all right. Well, things are about to change. Before dawn breaks... Paul convinces everyone on board to eat. You know, it, it, when there's that much motion, I imagine just about everybody was pretty seasick. And it's hard to cook. <laughs> Those sheep that have fallen off the boat because of all the rocking, you know, it's hard to cook in the midst of a storm. And so I guess with the anchors, they're stationary enough that they are able to eat. They all take some. Then they throw the grain overboard. Why would they do that? Because they're going to need to run ashore and get through the shallow bits. But you know what happens when you throw the grain overboard, when you throw the ballast overboard? It makes the motion of the boat even worse. And then they, they even cut away the anchors and then loosen the rudders. And they head towards the beach. And then bam, they run aground. Apparently running aground is a pretty violent thing. And they're stuck in the sand. And the, 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 the waves are coming in such force, and the timbers have been so damaged by running aground that the stern starts coming apart. So things are getting pretty desperate. Not only is it tempestuous wind out there, right? Not only are the waves crashing upon them, but the, the ship is falling apart. What are they going to do? Well, the soldiers say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill all the prisoners. So they don't escape. How often do we do selfish things like that in the midst of storms? We say, I don't really care about you. I'm just looking out for number one. We're always going to look out for number one. It just depends on who we think number one is. 
Philippians 2 tells us that we're to consider others as more important than ourselves, and we're always meant to do all things to the glory of God, because He's number one and we're not. But Paul and the other prisoners were saved through the centurion. And soon all 276 people... Isn't this amazing? 276 people. No one dies. Not a hair is damaged off their heads. They make it to shore. There are three keys here as we seek to respond to the storms of life with faith and courage. We think of uh, our friends, our Christian friends in fellowship. We think about the Word. think about prayer. There are other things too, right? Like the sacraments. How do we land this plane? How do we dock this ship? Perspective is everything, isn't it? If you survived a hurricane, you're not going to worry about a summer shower. Right? You've seen the bad. You're not going to worry about a, a light drizzle. One of the things that's going to help us deal with the storms of life with faith and courage is perspective, knowing what we have been saved from and realizing that God's going to get us through this slight momentary affliction. What have we been saved from? See, we look to Jesus who has delivered us from a far greater storm, the storm of God's righteous wrath and anger that you and I deserve. You and I deserve God's judgment because of our sin, of all the ways that we've not responded well with faith and courage and belief in the storms of life, but also all the times we've had other gods before Him. And all the times we've made idols out of other things. And all the times we've taken His name in vain. All the times we've not remembered the Sabbath to keep it holy. And all the times we haven't honored our parents. And all the times we've murdered others by being sinfully angry. And all the times we've lusted in our hearts after someone who's not our spouse. And all the times we've stolen. And all the times we've lied. And all the times we've coveted. It's called the Ten Commandments. And all the times we haven't loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all the times we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. But by God's grace... The storm broke, and it broke upon the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. We are in the safe harbor of Christ. He has taken the wrath that we might receive His love and adoption. And having been sheltered by the stormy blast of God's judgment, don't we think God's going to get us through the rest of it? As we have that perspective, may the Lord grant us the grace and mercy we need to face the storms of life with faith and courage. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer, that you would help us to face the storms of life in faith and courage, that our eyes would be steadfastly upon the anchor of our souls, the hope of our lives, our captain, our Savior Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.